dangerous dames, men of iniquities, a city of scandal. We watched Portland Expose, which means it's time for another episode of Portland at the Movies. In a world, in a time, in a land of eternal beauty, all that stands between a city and a disaster, in a city where anything can happen, if you thought you had seen it all. Portland, still a good place to rear children. <laughs> Hello and welcome to another episode of Portland at the Movies. My name is Todd Workhoven and with me as always is Mark Middleton. How are you, Mark? I'm doing really well. And of course, Brian uh, Kid the Unipiper is here as well. How are you, Brian? Happy days. Happy days, happy days. Uh, this week or this month on Portland at the Movies, we are taking a look at the 1957 movie Portland Exposé. So, Brian, why don't you tell us a little bit about what this movie is? Portland Exposé, or if you're German, you may have uh, encountered it as terror in Portland City. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, wow. I guess uh, it wasn't... Portland isn't known as a t- name of a city in Germany, so they had to clarify. <laughs> they had never heard of us before. <laughs> uh, no, this movie... But that uh, means this film was released in Germany? I guess. Huh. Yeah. Interesting. Because in 1957, that's what Germans uh, wanted. (laughs) There was nothing else to watch, I guess. (laughs) It's whatever we wanted to give them. (laughs) Uh, How did we hear about this movie? Because this has not been on our list of movies for the show. This was not. I believe this came up in a Facebook suggestion from the last time we recorded. I feel like somebody in the comic uh, section said, have you guys ever heard of this? And we all Googled it immediately. But either way, it was from from a listener. So uh, thank you for that. Totally. Uh, one of the awesome things about doing the show is how we keep finding these movies that we have never heard of. Yeah. And this one is very Portland centric. So it was really cool. Um, but definitely from what I found out, um, learning a little bit about the backstory uh, and the context of this film really helped uh, uh, helps you appreciate it. And you were able to find this movie at Movie Madness, were you not? I was, yeah. So that's awesome. Um, there's not a lot of options for watching this movie. No, there are not. I believe that might be the only one. I think you can you can order the DVD off of Amazon. Amazon. Yeah, I think there exactly. is one streaming service. Oh, really? Uh, okay. Forgotten Noir. Is that what it is? No, no, no. Um, yeah. I, classic Noir. I, yeah, I saw it on there, but I, I didn't see the streaming option actually work, but uh, I did <laughs> they see... Add, they haven't had a customer yet, so they don't know if the service <laughs> actually know. is working. Uh, but on Amazon, it's uh, it's part of a collection of forgotten Noir movies that come on multiple on one DVD. That's sure. the one they have at Movie Madness. Yes. Yeah. Okay. So uh, anyways... We are now two episodes in a row uh, that feature prominently in uh, Life Magazine. Life Magazine. Um, so th- th- this is what uh, this movie would not exist if it were not for right here the March uh, March 11th issue 1957 of uh, Life Magazine. So it has uh, on page 31 here. I don't know if we can see this. Yeah, hey, maybe yeah, you, you can watch it through. Yeah. Through oh, that. there we go. Yep. Cool. Um, so it, it's like four pages long. And uh, it's called Senators Hear Tales of Scandal. Uh, and it's all about uh, corruption uh, in Teamsters and, and uh, Mafia Syndicate. Uh, and, and, and a picture of Pinball, which figures heavily pinball. into our story. Right. So, yeah, uh, I'll, I'll kind of explain the backstory of what, what, what that article is about. Um, so, uh, history, 1949, um, Pinball becomes outlawed in Portland. Um, okay, and it was actually around that time where pinball was outlawed in a number of major uh, U.S. Now, cities. Was it something where pinball seemed something that you could? Because the implication in this movie was that that was part of gambling, and I'm not sure how you gamble on a pinball machine. I guess mon- you, for for money. I guess I don't know exactly how it worked, but I did notice in the movie that there were no flippers on the machines, which I noticed as well. I just thought the children were mentally handicapped <laughs> because they were both playing pinball on the side of the pinball machine, nowhere near the little flippers. So maybe it was more like a like a just a slot machine, kind of like a slot machine. Yeah. Okay. So uh, well, that helps a little bit. So and they they said that people would bet on them, uh, and so maybe it was. So it was like plinko, where you're trying to figure out where it's going to go before it goes there maybe right or i'm not sure how or it, if multiple people yeah you know, like you who got, could get the best score or i'm or not sure like how it scored if the ball oh. just fell straight down 
<laughs> and that's why we don't gamble on pinballs today. No, I know, I know how it worked. They, 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 they launched the ball and they're like, all right, $5 says it goes straight down the hole. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it was a racket. It was an obvious racket. Um, okay, so uh, pinball becomes illegal. And uh, at this time, the, the big four uh, vices, prostitution, drugs, booze, and gambling, those were all controlled in Portland um, by the, the syndicate. Uh, it was a racket. Uh, and and um, the Teamsters Union was involved um, because the, the syndicate used the Teamsters as their muscle. The man that was running everything in Portland, his name was uh, Big Jim Elkins. Um, and he basically, like I said, controlled all four of those things in, in Portland, the illegal uh market of prostitution drugs booze and gambling mm-hmm. um and uh then there uh was some drama the existing racket up in seattle was expanding their territory and they were wanted to move into portland and they wanted uh, knowing that jim elkins kind of controlled everything in portland they wanted to use his connections to work their way in and then essentially turn him into a pawn so that they would uh control everything themselves wow uh, and then the story gets a little bit murky. Um, there's actually two two different uh, conflicting tales of how it went down. Um, one version says that there was uh, uh, Big Jim's rival, Stan Terry. Um, he was trying to uh, take over, and, and uh, he actually forced Big Jim out. And Big Jim retaliated by basically turning everyone in. Okay. Um, and then the other story is just that Big Jim had a change of heart, and from the 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 to clear his conscience, he he just turned everyone. He in. turned everyone in. Yeah. Either way, um, the information that Big Jim turned over um, ended up getting a lot of people in trouble. Uh, it went all the way up to like the governor's office. In a case, and I'm sure we'll talk about this. In what must be one of the first cases of somebody wearing an undercover microphone. Yeah. Because. <laughs> So <laughs> it in the Life magazine story, it, it documents the big bullet points of kind of how this uh, story evolved. And for the movie, the, even on the movie poster for Portland Exposé in the top left corner, it says, as seen in the pages of Life. Of Life, yeah. So they, they took these big, um, uh, big points and just built a story around it. And in four, because you held up this Life magazine, which is from March 11, 1957, this movie came out in August, in 1957, August. which right. is like four months. That's, that's quick so, throwing together a movie. Yeah, they had to write it. They had to cast it, get a script, and film it, and release it, and market it. Like, Yeah. I don't so know So how- it must have been like, I mean, I guess they do that with, with Lifetime movies now. So, And because this movie also clocks in at an hour and eight minutes, and yeah. I think that's with credits. So this is barely a movie. I mean, this is an hour long. I'm sure that factored into um, not having the, the budget and, and then how the movie starts also like there's narration in this movie. Part of big Jim turning everybody in. Um, he wore this giant 1950s tape recorder, the best technology at the time. And it's, you know, Oh, it's of, yeah. It's like the size of a legal pad. It almost looked like I. You always saw them. They're the old, the like the old cassette players in schools where it had. It was like a big rectangle, and most of that was the gray speaker. And then on towards one end, it had the huge clunky like play stop like that. And then you load the cassette in the top. It was like that. And that's the undercover microphone that they use in this movie. Under his clothes, and so he's wearing. He's got a holster for it. That's yeah. He's got his chest. <laughs> he wears it like a bandolier. But yeah, he's trying to go undercover with that huge thing underneath his his jacket, which is pretty hilarious. Uh, so we've got the uh, let's see what a oh uh, point in the movie was uh, when they send. Well, maybe we should talk about the plot of the movie before we get into the uh, specifics. Well, I would have one more, a couple more things to add just for that context since you gave us the history of that. So this is 1957. So this is like very McCarthy area or area era as well. Um, the cover of this Life magazine. One, one of the photos of the Senate committee that was investigating um, because of what came out in in this uh, expose, uh, Joseph McCarthy is actually in the picture. Oh, really? Yeah. So oh, he really? Was on the committee. Because so was, um, oh, what's his name? The the mob boss who got buried in cement somewhere. Jimmy, Jimmy Hoffa, Hoffa. Is a pictured in there. But the cover of Life magazine is not, is 
uh, John F. Kid- John Kennedy, Kennedy. Yeah. but he was probably barely Senator Kennedy. Senator Kennedy, and they they note him as author Kennedy because he must have just written a book or something. Yeah, but that's pretty that's pretty interesting that. So that's all of the context of this big vice and 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 all of that stuff happening at the same time and and all of these blue laws. You mean this book right here, Tom? Profiles, profiles in Courage, <laughs> so which the, I believe most of which was uh, stolen from somebody else's writing. We were just it has come out. We were just talking about this before the show that the reason he's on here is he's promoting his brand new book, and then Mark profiles had this book wow. sitting on the bookshelf right over there. <laughs> that's pretty great. There's something else I'd like to show you guys. Uh, no, I think I was trying to figure out if I wanted to, if we wanted to play the um, that little intro of Portland to Oregon right now, or if we want to save that for later. Well, if we're gonna start talking about the movie, I think that would be the perfect segue. Perfect. All right. Well, then let's do that. So yeah, the, uh, when you when the movie opens, and this is like pre credits, pre anything. Um, there's kind of an establishing shot of downtown Portland from. Um, PGE Park and I think it's from they must have taken those from the windows of the Portland Towers building because the Portland Towers building shows up a couple times and it would make sense uh, that the shot that they do of, of old downtown Portland is in that and this is uh, a great shot it's a cool shot and they do it a couple times and they kind of zoom in a couple times uh, you can see all of these uh, screenshots at Portland at the movies.com and I'm putting together a map too which I will relentlessly talk about forever because every episode of Portland at the movies I'm doing uh, locations and adding them to a Google map with pictures uh, from the movie that we're reviewing and there's so many great ones for this movie because like we said it's in 1957 so to see the to see how the areas have changed and in a couple uh, couple cases have not changed at all since uh, since this movie was shot. But this uh, has some great opening narration from um, like the quintessential like 40s and 50s newscaster guy that that I just love. So it's a little long, but I think it it totally sets the tone for everything I think this movie is. So Horton Oregon, one of the nation's most beautiful cities with Mount Hood rising in the distance. Majestic, serene, white with eternal snow. Portland is a city of wide streets, modern buildings, deriving much of its industry from the giant forests of the Northwest. The citizens of Portland attend many fine churches. That was my favorite Portland part. is a city of beautiful homes. In the soft climate, gardens grow lush and green throughout the year. Roses are everywhere in profusion. For years, Portland has been known as the City of Roses. Within easy distance of the city are settings of incomparable natural beauty, such as Majestic Multnomah Falls. It is a family town. It's a travel guide. A good place <laughs> it really to bring up is. children. And yet, like the muddy overflow of Bonneville Dam, Uh-oh. crime and ugliness recently swept down on Portland, like these rushing waters, vice threatened to inundate this jewel of a city. For the events you are about to see happen here. And they could happen again in your town. That may be, oh, sorry. That may be the single best uh, Portland moment that has happened on this show. I think so. I think so. And I just love how it turned. Well, first, I first love how we have many fine churches that we are all allowed to visit. They slip that in. But then like the muddy river, the muddy waters of the Bonneville Dam vice is sweeping, sweeping into your. Over. Oh, that's so great. Yeah, let's talk about that narration a little bit. Yeah. Uh, it, it reminded me of the setup to like one of those cautionary tale movies. Yep. Like Reefer Madness or yes, something. It had that same, it's it's that same panic. The voice also sounds like somebody else. And this is immediately what my mind went to. Testimony of the miserable souls who survived this terrifying ordeal. The incidents, the places. My friend, we cannot keep this a secret any longer. Let us punish the guilty. Let us reward the innocent. So that is who, Brian? Uh, all of our keen-eared listeners would, of course, recognize that as the voice of Edward J. Wood uh, in the intro to Plan 9 from Outer Plan Space. Plan 9 from Outer Space. And you're right. When you started playing that, uh, it sounds exactly, exactly like that vice, the vice guy. Uh, oh, I also love how they uh, mispronounced Oregon. Oregon. And- Oregon. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's how you can tell from they were out of town. <laughs> so the the movie. Yeah. Um, what is it about? So the movie, 
I couldn't figure out what it was about at first because I thought it was going to be all about labor disputes because of the mob and the and the, all of the picketers and stuff like that. If you know nothing going in, you're going to be a little bit confused. Yeah. So basically, there's a guy who owns a tavern. Um, and the Woodland Tavern. The Woodland Tavern. Yes, it's a it's a man and a wife and their two their their daughter and their son. And they own the Woodland Tavern, and they are being pressured by two different. Well, initially a a mob syndicate to put in pinball machines and gambling um, slot machines. Yes, and and the mob would take half, and the business would keep half. Um, but then a new mob comes in and it must be like you said in the story, the, the Seattle mob coming in. So the new mob comes in and demands that their pinball machines and gambling machines be put in their tavern, which uh, kind of a question about the tavern. Did they live at the tavern? Because it always looks like the middle of their living room. I, I don't think so because they, um, there was one time where he was at home and uh, and she said, "Well, I'm coming down to the tavern." He uh, said, "I'm not she, at the tavern." And 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 it looked like he was at home. He was at a flop house, though, wasn't he? Oh, I, I think she at that point was staying with her mother. Right. Right. Yeah. In, so she was out of town in Corvallis. In Corvallis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So the new mob wants their machines in um, and keep pressuring. Uh, and the guy says, "No." The tavern owner says, "No, we're not going to do it." He eventually gets pressured into it. Um, and then he is approached by the police to operate as an undercover mob agent to record the mob with his giant tape recorder and to bring them all down. And his family moves out, moves to Corvallis to get out of the, Corvallis out of the way for a while. Corvallis. Yeah. It's over the river and, uh, through the woods. It's how you get to Corvallis. <laughs> totally. Totally. Yes. And so the story, um, revolves around him going undercover with his giant tape recorder and recording the different things the mob says. And then he has various adventures undercover. Yeah. And for, like we said, this movie is is just over an hour. And it, it really felt way longer well, it, than that. It did. And I think... It be- felt normal movie length. Yeah. Yeah. But then when you see it's only just over an hour, you're like, oh, wow. <laughs> there is nothing here. So, yeah. That it is based on a barely page-long article in Life magazine makes perfect sense that you showed me that. Yeah. So let's talk about some of the uh, plot points uh, in the movie that, okay. were, that were kind of interesting. Um, so before, uh, so, so when the mob is pressuring uh, our tavern owner into the slot machines, uh, the tactics that they use to uh, force their slot machine, their, their pinball machines into the tavern, um, why don't you tell us w- what they did to uh, encourage? Well, when the, yeah, the tavern owner, what is the tavern owner's name? Uh, the main George. character, George, George. Yeah, George is the main character. He's the tavern owner who's saying no and goes undercover. Um, and so to pressure him into it, they oh, are you talking about the little the bottle? Yeah. So they they put him in a chair, you know, and they're gonna interrogate him, and they take out this tiny little apothecary looking bottle with a cork in it, and they take the cork out, and and some steam or some vapor comes out to indicate that it's some sort of crazy acid, and then they drip it on something, don't they? They drip it on his hand. Oh, they're that's like, right. It burns, like, it doesn't it? Burns, it burns, doesn't it? <laughs> and then he's like, are you going to put that in my eyes? And they say, no, we're going to put it on your daughter. <laughs> and so he's threatening the daughter. This movie's attitude towards violence against women. It was <laughs> insane. So they introduce that. And there's so there's and the other thing that right off the bat um, got me was when um, they were going through the, the credits and Frank Gorshin's name came up. Yes. And Mark, do you know who Frank Gorshin is? I have no idea. This is the only person in the credits, the name that I recognize. Right. And Frank Gorshin played the Riddler on the 60s Batman show. Oh, okay. And so that's how I'm like, oh, fun. The Riddler is going to be here. Oh, the Riddler's a pedophile. Because... And a a rapist. And a rapist. Yeah. So he... And no, like... So as his mob... He's part of the mob. Frank Gorshin is his creepy character. And... They all mention like, "Oh, is this going to be just like it was in?" Well, they alluded that he had just gotten out of jail because okay. he says, "I okay. did a stint for that. That's I did my right. time That's for right. that." That's right. Uh, and so clearly, he had uh, uh, raped and had a um, what's an it? underage girl. Under, underage girl. Yeah. And 
So uh, he is a child predator. Right. And and now Frank Gorshin, the Riddler. The family you know, the the mob, the you know, the uh the the labor union there, yeah. the the uh, guys were like, Well, you you're not it's not gonna be like last time, is it? Oh no, no, no. We've we've got the solution now. Uh he's only going to be with old women that are older than 60 years old and and that will be better yeah and he kept he kept promising and then but then they like sicked him on her like she walked out they didn't know the mob didn't know that he had a daughter and they see the daughter and they were like hey frank wake up like go get her and he does and then they proceed to have a very for especially for this time period very violent uh attack assault rape attempted rape scene it was unbelievable it was shocking so it was i wrote that down too i was like this is legitimately awful it was disturbing even by like today's standards what you would see in something of like game of thrones of, of a woman being attacked yeah and there's level. no there's no nudity no. Or, or but i mean it was very like visceral yeah and that's what i felt too i was like this is this is it was not un- okay uncomfortable very dark yes. yeah and so I was noticing that the only the only actor that I really liked in this movie is the the girl who played the daughter, whose name is uh, Ruth. Ruth is the daughter's name, um, and she was really good. And I, I wrote one of my last notes was, "I love Ruth. I want her to have a better life," <laughs> because right before she gets raped by the Riddler, she's in a car with her high school boyfriend who tries to who tries to rape her basically every interaction uh between ruth and a man uh goes south fast yeah that is not her father yeah and yeah so is she walks out of the car with her boyfriend trying to make the moves because the boyfriend because at this at this point george the father has put the the pinball machine he has been forced to put him in the thing and so like the the high school boyfriend's like i heard i know what your dad does that means you're loose or whatever he said he said something very you've specific. been around you've been you've, around you've been around and then he wants to take her to a hotel i think yeah and then yeah. so she slaps him and says no and walks out right into frank gorshin's arms right throws her against a tree and yeah it was it was crazy but then uh frank gorshin they take him uh, and they give him what they call the uh, lonely hobo treatment. <laughs> yeah, it's true. It's true. Oh, like like is a lonely hobo. And what is the lonely hobo treatment? They drive him out to the railroad tracks and well, uh, first they bludgeon him. They, they bludgeon him. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And with one of those classic like mob heavy. Yeah, the little things. heavy bag things. They're like you know. There's got to be a name for one of those. Beating them in their hands. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just in the back seat of their car, and so like <laughs> yep. bloodied up the back seat of their so, car. They drive him to the warehouse. They open the door and, and pound then, him in the face a couple more times. <laughs> the seat. They and drag then they him out to drag the, him out to the railroad tracks in front of an oncoming train. <laughs> And the guy that drags him out there is laughing and maniacally. He's laughing, he is having a great time. Joyous. Eyes are like wide. What I what I did appreciate about that because up until up until that point, it was like, oh my gosh, this is going to be like we were talking right before we started um, recording about a movie called Sleepaway Camp, which is a horror movie, a really terrible horror movie from the uh, from the early eighties, and there's a. There's a character in there at the camp, uh, an adult that is is constantly telling everyone around him that he's going to get with these, you know, 12 and 13 year old girls. And no one I mean, I know it was the late 70s, early 80s, but nobody had a problem with that. And so I'm watching this and I'm watching that scene that you said was disturbing. I'm like, this movie's not going to have any like they're barely going to care. Like it's going to be one of those things. So I was really happy when the mob was like, no, this is not acceptable. Like we kill people and we steal stuff and we, you know, all of this stuff, but this is too far. And so I really did like that was how, surprising. how they did that too. Of all things. <laughs> this movie was woke. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, what else? What else? Stood out. What, there's one other part that stood out. I was talking about a little before and I didn't tell you why, but there's a part. Um, so George also has a son who is maybe 13 or 14 or something. Little like Timmy. That. Little Timmy who has nothing to do in the movie except he has this really weird sidebar conversation with her sister's uh, boyfriend. And they're all getting ready to move down to Corvallis to, to you know, get out of the way of the mob. Corvallis, get it right. Corvallis. Corvallis. 
and the son Timmy is is uh, loading up his stuff, and he has a little pet rat, and he's chasing this little rat around the house. And I noticed uh, the and so they're talking about him, uh, Timmy, and the older the older boyfriend guy are are talking about the name of the rat. So I'm going to play you a little clip here, Tim. What's this Benny thing? Just a name, only a name. Kind of cute, ain't it? Cute name for a rat. So this movie came out in 1957, correct? Yes. Yep. So there is a famous, and which we've talked about on our other show before, and Mark has no idea, but there's a Michael Jackson song from the early 70s called Ben. And it's um, this, uh, I can play a tiny bit of it on. Oh, uh, it's right. starting to come together. Michael Jackson. So everyone, I feel like everyone's heard it, but it is uh, the movie, or the, excuse me, the song came up, um, it was for a movie called Ben, which was about a pet rat. Right. Which was a sequel to a movie called Willard that came out in 1971. Right. Um, and so for my whole life, Ben has been the name of this Michael Jackson song about um, a rat named Ben. And here Ben shows up in this movie as a rat in <laughs> 1957. And he's making a joke about it being yeah. a funny name. Yeah. Was Willard or Ben a remake I don't think so because there has been a Willard remake with. Um, okay. So here's the. So it's this very sweet song about how Michael Jackson's only friend can be a rat because nobody else understands him and it's <laughs> kind of tragic. Um, but yeah, it was a really weird confluence of things to be so specific. I could tell that the movie was trying to say something there and it was lost on me. And so yeah, like, that was. What? Ben? Was that another character? No, that was his name. That was the boyfriend's name. Oh. It was he... also the rat's name. Right. Ra- he named the rat after the boyfriend. It, Why would he do that? Because he hates the boyfriend. <laughs> that no, that's the whole joke. I didn't get that at all. No, 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 no. I didn't get wait it. A minute, wait a minute. Okay. Wait a minute. Okay. Okay. So I, mean, I believe you, but I didn't get <laughs> okay, it. Okay. <laughs> so at the before the first scene where we see the kids, uh, the uh, Timmy ex, uh, uh, ribs the the mom about. The boyfriend says, Benny, oh, he's 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 terrible, basically. And so Timmy hates the boyfriend. Okay. Okay. And so then um, the next scene where they're all taking place, he is moving the rat and he drops the rat and the rat scurries away and he's calling after the rat, Benny, Benny. 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 And he's like, well, what'd you call him? Benny. Well, Why'd you call it? Oh, it's just a funny name. Wink, wink. And then the girlfriend clarifies it and says, oh, well, he only did that, you know, to to get at me. because Because, you know, and and, right. Oh, he's just doing regular brother things. Okay, I guess. Wow. If you take away the fact that it's the name of the boyfriend, that scene relates to nothing yeah and it's never brought up again the rats never seen again or talk yeah. about it. the rat doesn't have anything to do with the main storyline i thought that was a really weird i just thought plot. it was crazy that it was ben the rat at a which right it was benny the rat named after the boyfriend benny. well it's still a crazy coincidence <laughs> it was the fact he winks and says it's a coincidence Going well, no, no, no. What it's I'm saying, not a coincidence. it's a coincidence right. that it's then the name it's of the ben. ben. So maybe the Michael Jackson, song. you know, they did the sequel to Willard, the story about a rat. Anyway, it was a crazy thing. <laughs> hey, so here's a question. So, also in this movie, there's gambling, um, they bring in girls for uh escorts and and prostitution into and the B tavern, B girls, bar girls. That's what the that's, is that what that had, stands for? I had to look it up. Okay, yeah, yeah, because they um, just they are, keep... it's a slang term for bar girls. Oh, okay. and so they they never yeah they they alluded to a lot of prostitution, uh, but they never like clarified. Right. They said escorts and b girls. Yeah, I needed my Urban Dictionary 1957 edition. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. There was a lot of 50s slang in this movie. Oh yeah, everyone was a um, oh what do you call a, a wise, wise guy. guy. Wise guy and dames and there was and... a part. Um, let's see if I can find it. That eventually, so the the second mob that comes in and and wants to put their machines on that is controlled by a uh, a madam from Seattle, which is an older 
like unsinkable Molly Brown. Yes. Yeah, because she and, flies down. And yeah. I think she wanted to open the, expand the prostitution ring because they set her up with a, a house. Right. Right. And so she comes down and she's explaining, um, which has a great little scene. We'll talk about the locations later, but at the Portland airport, which looks really fascinating in, in 1957. But she's explaining her uh, models and escorts. And she says, and I'll play it here, and you guys can help me figure out the rest of it. She says, my models and escorts are all ladies, no ipsos something, and no hopheads. And so I can't figure out what her slang is, so maybe you guys can uh, can help me uh, clarify hmm. it here. Let me back this up a tiny bit. So I'm sure you did. And my models and escorts are all ladies. No dipsos, no hophead. No dipsos. No dipsos. Does that yeah. mean like not dumb? Maybe. No. no yeah. No. Not dippy. Hophead would be Hop alcoholic dipsos. or marijuana. Hopheads. Uh, hothead maybe. Mm, I think it's hophead. This uh, language is impenetrable. <laughs> I'll play it one more time. It's like we're watching Shakespeare. I know. <laughs> and escorts are all ladies. No dipsos. No hophead. Yeah, it's hopheads. No dipsos and no, no hopheads. Heads, dipsos and hopheads. <laughs> anyway, I thought that was pretty great. I liked her the best. She's my favorite character. Hophead is an umbrella term for if, users if, of everything from cocaine to marijuana. Okay, like they're all hopped up on which goofballs. Which is a jazz era term. Ah, ah there we go. Ah, no hop, hopping. So there was one other, speaking of jazz and and um, and ben, prostitutes. Ben and, and prostitutes, there was a song that keeps playing... Um, when they show exteriors of the tavern to like show that there's a party going on inside. And I want you guys to tell me what you think it sounds like from another movie from our childhood. I know exactly what I was going to comment on that earlier. What? So what did it remind you of? That sounds exactly like the um, Enchantment Under the Sea dance from Back to the Future. It sounds exactly like that. So here's... Here's Enchanted Under the Sea. Yeah. So this is a song called Night Train, which is a jazz, an old jazz standard. And so it played a couple times in the movie, and I was like, this, I am at the Enchanted Under the Sea dance. Yeah, I thought that was hilarious. Yeah. <laughs> trying to have, help Michael Michael Jackson, uh, Michael J. Fox, <laughs> keep himself hidden from his other self while he <laughs> he hurt his hand. In the... This movie would have been a lot more interesting with time travel. <laughs> if there was a time travel element to it. <laughs> That'd be awesome. <laughs> uh, um, oh, one thing that I noticed happened a couple of times in this movie. Okay, so this movie takes place in 1957. Um, there are is more than one reference to how things were 20 years ago. I um, noticed that. They, they said something like, you guys belong from in Chicago 20 years ago. And, and, yep. and then uh, at the beginning, um, guy gets beat up and he's like, there are these goons, you know, like real goons from 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I think for us, you know, the 90s are so catalyzed, you know, are so active in everybody's imagination because the... Uh, the millennial generation that's active right now, they grew up in, in the Everything 90s. Everything is kind of in 20-year chunks 20-year like chunks. And so if you're in the 50s and you're talking about anything to do with gangsters, you're talking about 20 years ago. Yeah, well, and I uh, guess especially Chicago then, like in the 1920s yeah. and 30s. Well, yeah. also interesting, like, so, okay, so this is clearly, this is a noir movie, but 1957, that's like pushing the end of the film noir period. Right. So in like 1937 is maybe arguably at the beginning. So it, it, it's kind of like a throwback. Oh. Or yeah, just why? I mean, it was just a wildly outdated cash grab, which <laughs> <Wildly> <laughs> seemed yeah. like if it's only nobody wanted a noir movie in 57. And barely, yeah, and barely an hour long. Yeah. And filmed in Portland based on an article in Life magazine that's barely a page long. It definitely had all the uh, noir tropes, though. You know, you had the, the bad guys and the funny names and the funny voices. There were fedoras and doors with hand-painted letters. And yeah. voiceover. And, <laughs> Lots yeah, of angles just... from the ground up yeah. up to the ceiling, uh, the Silk. harsh shadows. Now, yep. they there's the one guy that um, George, uh, our hero, 
uh, keeps reporting to with his audio tape. And they always, he's the guy with the phone in the bookcase. Mm-hmm. And they always show him from behind. Do they ever show the front of him? Yeah, so he's the leader, leader of the other cartel. The other, the other, there's two the rivalry that the name of the uh the guy that runs the Al Gray. No, no, oh. no, no. Uh, the try another name, Todd. <laughs> <laughs> no, Al Gray was uh, the person referred to by that guy in charge with the with the right. Phone, right? He Don't goes, write this name. Don't down. write this name down. Uh, talk to Alfred Gray, and he's over in this building, right? Uh, and that guy with the phone that we only see the back of was referred to by. The guy that we see in the first scene uh, selling the uh, video games, mm-hmm. selling the pinball machine and right. the jukebox. And so he, when he was at home and drunk and George came over to his house and, and like, who who was the guy that you were working for? Okay. I, I need to get his name. And uh, it's in my black book. And so he gets his black book. Uh, then he goes to a payphone in the middle of a bridge. In the, in the middle, middle of, of a the bridge, <laughs> that well, I laughed so hard. His tavern is on it, the edge of town. They keep saying, but like right by some, not like a, a a highway bridge, but like a bridge in the country that would go over just a little a little piece of the river. And he walks out of his tavern. He walks past some trees. He gets on this trestle bridge, and like in the middle of a trestle bridge. Giant payphone looking out over the water, and it was so funny. And and so he gets on the phone. And he's like, "My my phone at the tavern is tapped. I don't want to say my name until unless I know that your phone is not tapped as well." Oh, you can. My phone trust is not me. tapped. My phone is not tapped. We're safe now. Like he's like, oh, "Okay, here's well, all the information and you want." My from social me. security <laughs> number is five seven zero what? And, He's like, really? I did notice how easily trusted the secretive mob boss was to George. Oh, okay. If you say so. And you need to take care of my family. All right, done. All right, sure. No problem. Curvallis? Yeah. In Curvallis. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I couldn't figure out where where the location, that was one of the locations we couldn't figure out was was the actual tavern location. Right. Yeah. Yeah. which I, I don't think was we, a real tavern. I think it was just someone's house in the woods. That, that yeah. look like. We don't have any ex- exteriors of that. Like there's no action that happens there. Uh, un- unlike like the Hill Villa. Yeah. And other places where there was actual uh, external shots. Uh, the tavern uh, really didn't have anything that was outside of the studio. Right. I did have one more hilarious thing that I noticed. Um, Whenever you go to community theater or you see a performance like that and you you look at the background extras and there's a crowd scene where they have to be making noise, you do that thing where you, you just like to mimic hubbub, hubbub, mimic hubbub, hubbub, hubbub. And so I want you to listen. They at the end, they they gather together a group of bounty hunters, oh, police yeah. men. Yeah. I, I think they might have been teamsters. I'd, whoever they were, they all took taxis to the raid, which was hilarious. <laughs> radio, radio cab, radio, radio cab, cab, taxis, and so they're um, the whoever is in charge of the this rabble, this rabble of the crowd, rabble rabble, uh, says something, and you just hear them in the background. There's maybe fifteen or twenty of them, and it really cracked me up. You've also heard where the final proof, the records of these underworld operations, are kept and heavily guarded. What are we waiting for? Let's go! (laughs) 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 Oh, that was so great. I missed that. That was great. (laughs) So, yeah, I still don't quite know. So, they were from the rival mob? So, at the end, the mob wins? No, because they all get turned. Wait a minute. So the, I mean, there's the, the bad mob and the good mob. Basically, the the good one is doing things the right way, and is in has a good cop on their side and has good people on their side. Okay. And ultimately, get the laws changed in Washington D.C. There was like a ten second view of this <laughs> right, the at the very end capital. of the capital building but th- this and this also implied and i read a little bit about this about how 
how alcohol must have still been somewhat illegal at mm. this time. No. And I, no, alcohol was not illegal, but the uh, syndicates still sold moonshine because if they were able to sell their own alcohol, then they wouldn't have to pay taxes. Not state-controlled alcohol yeah, was still illegal okay. and still is today. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Illegal uh, moonshine. Uh, so speaking of locations, where were some of the other places that we saw in this movie? What did you see? Uh, there was a lot from like the PGE area. I noticed that they had, because there was not only a shot from the Portland Towers, there is an exterior shot of both the Portland Towers front entrance sign and the tower building itself. Um, but like we said, that opening um, shot of downtown is from there. So imagine if you were at the PGE Stadium and hovering right. about 100 feet above it. Yep. We Let's can start see the, the slideshow. The slideshow, all of you out in podcast land. <laughs> slideshow. <laughs> Visual podcast <laughs> is the way to success. If they uh, would like to see these photos, Todd, where should they go? Uh, they can go to portlandatthemovies.com, and on the side of that is a map that shows uh, uh, all of the movies we have done so far for this show with all of the different locations with different colored markers that you can click on and see the pictures from that movie and that location. So lots on the, on the Hawthorne Bridge, of course. Um, but Portland Exposé had quite... I was afraid because a lot of it would the tacky like interior looking sets of a bad noir film, I guess. And I was afraid that it was going to be all of that. But they did a lot of establishing shots and a lot of like just driving down the road or walking down the streets. It was cool. That was really cool. So uh, the movie starts where you said of PG Park and looks out over. Uh, you can see Mount Hood in the distance, mm-hmm. and and this uh, is bef- what's downtown before any of the skyscrapers were there. Yep. I mean, there's some office, you know, taller office buildings, but none of the. Yep, and then uh, there's a clip from the entrance of Hill Villa, which is now Chart House, uh, looking out over southeast, basically. Yeah, and that's up on the ter- on Terwilliger. If you yep. go kind of up the mountain towards OHSU, there's that cool, and it's beautiful. It's Never a beautiful view from up there. Never been there. It's really neat. Cool. You, everybody should look up a picture of Hill Villa. The building, this is after the remodel and it was boring looking, but um, when the Hill Villa was first built, it had a really cool look to the building. Hmm. Uh, and then next to it, they had a gift shop that sold uh, Indian curiosities. Oh, nice. wow. The other nice. thing, a hilarious thing about the Hill Villa is like when they built it, it's up you know, on the side of that hill. It's, it's way high up. And all of the pictures from when it's built, I mean, they just mowed down every tree with, like within an acre. Like not a let's leave some of the. It's just like all mowed down to the ground. <laughs> we will put our restaurant here. And so there's also an exterior of an old church that is uh, in northwest Portland, uh, which is on like northwest. Where is it here? 11th and. And uh, Trinity is a little place. It's kind of by the Fred Meyer that's off of Northwest Burnside there, mm. uh, right when you go past Powell's and stuff like that and across the 405. Um, and there's also a location, uh, so across the street from the church here, which is exactly, exactly looks like that still today. And then across the street, uh, there's a location in the movie called Kelly's Hotel. That's kind of a flophouse hotel or whatever, which is also exactly the same if you look on, yeah. on the Google street maps. Yeah, we'll see Kelly Hotel, Hotel in just a second. Yeah. Uh, this is looking out over the Portland Rose Garden uh, over the city. Yep. Uh, and then this There's is... There's the Mysterious Tavern or whatever yeah, they're calling it. This is it. the uh, Wood, Woodland... Woodland Tavern. It looks Woodland like something Tavern. on 26 out towards yep. Sandy and Mount I mean, yeah, it just kind of look like a house that has an overhang, kind of like the old motel type looking thing, but more of a, of a house... Yeah, with with a pass through in the driveway, I guess. This I haven't. There's a lot of great downtown uh, pictures, and actually, uh, we'll put a link to. I'm starting an, uh, a gallery album of places that we haven't identified yet, and here's a great downtown shot of some street that has a you know an old neon furniture and loan sign, a great old Ford pickup, and a Studebaker looking car. And I have no idea. Almost looks like MLK or Grand. Yeah, and it could be because they did a lot. Or just like third, uh, third up by, you know, um, Washington. Yeah. yeah. So hopefully, hopefully at some point we'll be able to pinpoint that one, but I'm not sure. It's just a great downtown shot. And there's, then, <laughs> there's the phone booth in the middle of the bridge. Like, that was right before he turned into Superman. It, almost, <laughs> it does look like the George Reeves version of the yeah. Superman 
TV show. It kind of looks like the Sandy River out by, you know, as you go out to Troutdale. It is definitely on a river yeah. uh, somewhere. But yeah, just a random. And so here's, and Mark, you can talk about this a little. This building showed up called the Portland, Portland Labor, Labor Temple. Temple. And that's where, uh, you know, the that was the name of the office facilities for any of the unions back in the day was the Labor Temple. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I found an article that referenced the original Labor Temple in Portland being at uh, downtown like 4th and Franklin. And this doesn't look like 4th and Franklin at all. Uh, but you found another reference. So I posted that- a bunch of these pictures on Facebook a while ago from this movie asking if anyone had had uh, no, knew any of the locations. And, and this guy, no, uh, Siegfried, um, who is pretty knowledgeable about both uh, movies and, and locations, uh, said that this was the, on what is now uh, MLK and Holiday, which is kind of by the convention center. Okay. It's, the, it's the intersection of MLK right as it uh, passes over um, I-84 underneath it. And so now it's like a coffee shop or like a pet sitting place or something like that. But it's down by the convention center. And then there's a second shot of a guy of, of our of George walking down the road. And in the background, you can see that labor temple building. Oh, and yeah. so he thought, and it kind it does look like it from the pictures, although where it's unsubstantiated, I guess uh, that it is around, um, uh, MLK, what is now MLK and, and holiday. Hmm. Okay. Union station gets uh, a little scene. So yeah, we got a nice Hasn't exterior shot of that. A bit. Uh, really and hasn't. and an interior shot. The, the only thing that changes is that they have um some uh, some scenes on the outside road where he's getting picked up and the road it's looking away from like down the road from the train station which looks completely it almost looks like the Vegas strip. There's cafes and and right now it's the it's, bus station it's and hopping. Yeah, so that was really interesting. Um, to see that part because there's no condos and but yeah the inside of the building looks exactly the same and yep. what's now Wilf's or is it still Wilf's restaurant or is it different now? So there's a restaurant inside the train station. Yeah. So the, this scene, uh, this is the scene in the movie. Uh, it, it's after George uh, is um, doing the audio recording and he is signed up uh, with the uh, syndicate and he's doing some work for them and they send him to go pick up a package from Union Station, uh, a package of narcotics. Um, And that is one of the uh, points that they lifted directly from the Life article. Um, Oh, okay. uh, um, Big Jim, he... Being uh, framed. He had uh, been arrested at some point for picking up narcotics at Union Station. At Union Station, wow. So that's the Iron Horse restaurant in the background. Uh, And so I don't think it was just for that. I don't think they would do that just for this movie because it doesn't play in in anything and it's a big neon sign. So that was the restaurant in the 50s then. And the Iron Horse being at the train station. That makes sense. (laughs) Oh, yeah. (laughs) This movie's Uh, deep. And so here's the airport, which just looks... It reminds me of the Ontario airport when I was growing up. I grew up in Ontario and it was all that outside, just flat, flat roofed building with like probably drive rocks up on top right of it. up to the front door <laughs> yep and get out get right onto your plane right. you walk on the tarmac so there's a couple tarmac shots with some great 50s airplanes when they uh the seattle madam comes down to visit and so he uh, george picks her up at the airport and there's a great yeah. dine at portland international airport dine neon sign portland yeah. international airport that's great so then there's this location, which was just like a little street get together thing when you can uh, see the steel bridge in the background and what's called the steel bridge cafe, which is no longer there. So it's at the base of the steel bridge where what they call what the, I don't know if they call it, but the that build the R2D2 building. Have you guys ever heard it called that? No. no. Is that something you actually found uh, reference to? No, they just always, it's the building that is now by across, like the, they, it's across the street from the uh, Chinese gardens or the Japanese, wait, oh, the Chinese, Japanese garden, Chinese, Chinese, Chinese garden. Yep. And so it's just kind of a squat, kind of bluish oh, I rounded. Okay. Another one you're talking about. Oh, it's that, still there? Yeah. Yeah. Not this the building. One. The the modern building that's next, uh, it's got a corner to the lands. It's where the offices, the lands who are up on the side. Oh, okay. Floor. So anyway, this used to be, this is the location that used to be there. And it's like on the corner of like Gleason and yep. second for the most part. Yep. 
This is the entrance to the warehouse. Uh, the warehouse is across the street from the uh, Portland Armory. So this warehouse that they go into is now, I believe, a parking, parking garage, garage, but looks exactly the same as it did in 1957. And this building must have been built in the 20s or 30s because yeah. it's just an old brick, a really cool old brick building. So yeah, that is exactly the same. It's across the street from the Armory. And there's also... They did a couple establishing shots of the Portland waterfront, which is uh, now Tomacall uh, Park, but back then was the um, Harbor Drive. Harbor Drive, which had used to have a public market on it, um, and it had a huge building with these two tower things coming out, like a really, a really long, maybe two or three story building with these two tower things it's coming really out neat. of it that was defining it's, yeah it's really cool looking and it was on the Oregon journal building and it was the kpgo uh, kpoj building for a while it was the public market we saw some pictures of it getting torn down uh got torn down in the f- 61 or something oh. like that or 63 so it didn't last a lot longer than do you think that could be where the saturday market is currently and that's why there's a saturday market? i bet you anything that's where it is because it yeah. went in between where like the um the hawthorne bridge is and the Burnside Bridge. Wow. So that could be very well why there's a public mm. market there now. So a very a lot of very cool locations in this movie to see what things look like in 1947, especially just the lack of skyscrapers and just the openness that it felt like. And there were lots of neon signs and yeah. flashing lights that you just don't have now. Yeah. Very, very cool. So in this in this movie, when his family goes to Curvallis to lay low and he's gathering information with his gigantic tape recorder. There's a point where the police say, okay, we've had enough, you know, thanks for your service. And he, George keeps on, he's like, I'm in this all the way. I, and he like keeps putting himself in danger, going and infiltrating the mob to secretly, what is his motivation? Why is he doing that? He's already he, got what So they, he, he wanted a bigger part of the, pies like what he what he kept referring to is like i wanted uh i wanted in you know but but getting more recordings wasn't gonna do that i thought Uh, it was revenge uh for what they did to his family for uh you really want to put away and well he probably doesn't know that the guy that attempted to rape his daughter has already been killed and put in. Well, and that, he just puts his family in more danger because they do end up poor Ruth after being attacked twice and then fleeing to Curvallis still gets manhandled by some goons trying to find uh, the dad's tapes. And so they kidnap her and bring her to the same place that they, they finally bring George after they discover his 80 pound tape recorder. They're going to pour the bottle on her. Yeah, that's right. Thought that'll show him. I knew he was a wise guy. He'll do what he uh, he does best. <laughs> yeah, I couldn't figure out that tavern because the way it was set up and decorated, it was like we were talking about. It, it was like their living room. I mean, they had like floor to ceiling, yeah, it, floral curtains. Very, in the uh, very country diner family. Friendly. I get. They packed the people Turned in into once, a casino. Once they got them pinball machines, yep. they were now were jukeboxes considered gambling because that was also one of the things that they brought in. He's like, "Oh, I'll take this jukebox machine. At least I'll get my coin back on that one or whatever." He said, "It wasn't gambling. You yeah. get what you it pay for." It was just rock music, and that yeah. was considered it, enough of a vice to exactly. And in that initial scene, he kept on trying to steer away from gambling. He's like, "Okay, I don't want the." I don't want more uh, pinball machines. I'll take one, but I'll definitely do the jukebox uh, because it's not gambling. Right. Yeah. Well, now I want to know when pinball machines introduced the flipper. Because how question. pointless was it before them? Why did it ever become popular? Because people like to see the flashy lights. <laughs> and, and shiny. Yeah, I guess loud noises Plinko. and shiny things. <sighs> oh, my gosh. So the other, uh, the guy who played George was in a couple other movies. Nothing super notable out of any of these people. I think the only notable thing was that they all did a lot of TV and like a lot of the no, like the Perry Masons and like all of the Dragnet and and all of the TV shows you think of in the fifties. They just made their rounds. And the lady who played the mom, who looked like she was the understudy of Joan Crawford, oh yeah, <laughs> whatever happened to Baby Jane. She was in Emergency, which was the um, the old 70s TV show with the police station and stuff like that. And what I noticed is that she was like in 
you know, 15 different episodes, all as a different character. And I noticed that throughout all of their history, they were like, was on Dragnet 15 times and like 15 different names. So they must have just had a stable of, you know, capable actors or whatever. And they just would American Horror Story just use them every season as someone else. Blonde girl at the hospital. Yeah. Blonde girl at the the grocery store. I was all excited. I thought she was one of the main the main people from Emergency because that the main lady from Emergency was like. 60 years old yeah, when that she, show is on. She, she was, was not young. <laughs> she was not. The one with the, with the little hat. Yeah, 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 yeah. Her. Oh, that was so great. The main guy, George, he was in a fantastic episode of the Twilight Zone called I Shot an Arrow into the Air. Ooh. It was one of those space episodes where the astronauts uh, land on a, a deserted planet and then they end up turning on each other and uh, killing each other uh, because they're running low on water. Uh, and then the one guy eventually, uh, after he kills everyone else and takes their water, sets off on a journey and realizes that the rocket ship had crashed on Earth. I remember oh, that episode. I yeah, wasn't the, the there... main guy. Yeah. That's uh, George. Okay. Ah. And he was also, I think we mentioned this at the big, uh, uh, up top, he was also in 12 Angry Men. He was juror number six. Yeah. So he clearly had the best uh, acting yeah. career. Totally. This was on his, this I, and this was, I think, the film directly after 12 Angry Men was this film for him. Hey, it was a lead role. It was a lead role. Um, the other thing I noticed about the mom, she played the voice of Norma Bates in Psycho, Psycho 2, and Psycho 3. Norma Bates, the mother wow. of Norman Bates. That's the mother in here? She was the voice because the mother was you know, uh-huh. obviously dead. And so she was, the, she was the voice of... Clara. Interesting. Uh, yeah, which I thought was pretty crazy. That's huh. that's neat. Um, and then Ruth, our dear Ruth, yeah, who was really like legitimately great in this movie, probably because she was actually terrified the whole time yeah. because of all the people trying to rape her constantly. I w- and and who I wrote about. I hope she has a better life someday. So Mark, <laughs> what happened she, to our dear Ruth? She so, burned. Uh, so she was how old in this? Ra- probably. Oh, in this movie, she was supposed to be 16 or 17. Yeah, and so uh, that was 57. So just uh, in 1970, so 13 years later, uh, she took her own life uh, with a gun yeah. and uh, committed suicide. So she had done a couple, a couple other acting gigs that looked like after that, and then and then married someone. I, I don't know the whole story, but yeah, sadly, sadly, the best thing about this movie was uh, our dear Ruth. She burned fast, burned bright. She did. She gave us everything she had in Portland Exposé, and but yeah, she was she was. In Portland great, is all so. the better for it, right? And she was on. Uh, she was also in House on Haunted Hill, the uh, Vincent oh, yeah, Price right. movie. Yep. Uh, was her big breakout before this. So, hmm. anything else about this movie? Uh, I don't know. W- would you tell folks that they should watch it? Uh, people in Portland, I I think so, uh, because. It, it it shows a a historical perspective of Portland that you don't see like the old establishing shot. If nothing else, like it's part of the Portland uh, portfolio of Canon. history. Yeah, yeah. And I would say that too. I I don't know that I would go through the effort of going to it's movie madness. <laughs> <laughs> I would say it's any any excuse to go to movie band is that's true. Worth that it. is that yep. is true. That is true. Um, if you're a noir fam, I, this isn't a, a good an example of a good right. noir film. Right. But um, but it's for not sure, standard. I, I don't feel like What's it his... was particularly clever. Like I don't think that no. there was a big twist or or anything. Right. It was pretty like I think it was more playing on the like based on a true story. See as it happened type. It was the CSI of its time, ripped from the headlines. Yeah, I would say for sure at least uh, look at the the different screenshots that we put up just so you can see what the town looked like. Right. Um, but it's I wouldn't say it's a it's a bad movie. No. But I wouldn't say it's a no. good one. No, I would say if you have a, more than a passing interest in seeing what Portland looked like in 1957, totally. then uh, it's definitely worth. Your and time. it was kind of fun to see like an old timey noir movie even though like yeah. you said it wasn't a good example but just like you right. know, the way that they talked and the acting style and like right. all of that stuff how much it's changed just as much as the geography of, was, the, of the city it was really cool to see like people's take on portland back in that time yes yeah yeah and it's coming for your city too yeah 
Yeah. You, you could watch this uh, alongside Double Indemnity or something and get get like a really good film noir and a, a Portland. Right. Our uh, effort at yeah. it. <laughs> there was one thing I wanted to point out on the uh, Wikipedia page for Portland Expose. Um, I don't know who <laughs> wrote this. I guess since it's Wikipedia, we could find out. Uh, but it says the plot follows a tavern owner in Oregon's latest city, Portland, who is involved. <laughs> no, whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> Wait, Oregon's latest <laughs> Our city? Latest city? Like we're dropping them like, like albums. In, in 1957, <laughs> Portland was the most recent city. The most recent city. Well, you know, it started with Astoria. <laughs> uh, and we. What we, a weird pl- way to phrase that. Why, that yeah, is why the would you strangest. ever say that? So since it is Wikipedia, I challenge our listeners to go. Ch- somebody change that. Somebody go fix that entry at the Portland at the Portland Expose site. It does have its own page, though. Yeah. Oh. <laughs> well, I think that's all. I, I think that's all we had for Portland Expose. So thank you, everyone who joined us, or at least tried to join us on our live feed. But thank you. For, Sorry everyone. about the audio. Yeah, we, that we did correct it, and we got. Uh, we got some streaming going, but... Uh, oh, we do? Oh, surprise. Yeah, we did. Oh, I didn't know. I was being watched. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But most of you are hearing us uh, on the Fun Employment Radio Network, which you can hear us every month when we do our show. Um, one of the other... There's another new show on the Fun Employment Radio Network called um, The Well-Adjusted Gamer, uh, which I've been listening to pretty great and may or may not be on in a couple of weeks, but... Um, but do check out their uh, Jason is the host of that Jason Pollard. Um, and so you can check that out. They've got a bunch of great shows you can download for free. Uh, you can also subscribe and listen live and interact with their shows as they're doing it. So go check them out at funemploymentradio.com. Uh, other than that, we will see you guys next time. And thanks for joining us. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Bye.